I'm proud of coming from the Highlands. I'm proud of being Scottish. You can't be proud of your past unless you're prepared to look at the other side of your past, the things that you should be ashamed of. The two just come together. This is Landed from Farmerama. Part 3. Colonial Connections. My name's Col. I'm a farmer's son from the Scottish Highlands. I moved back to my family's farm to help steer it in more agroecological directions and to prove a point that small family farms like mine are the future. But last year, I came across a statement which has challenged a lot of my long-held assumptions and has been preoccupying me ever since. The small family farm is a colonial concept. In part two, I started trying to unpick this statement. By digging where I stand, starting here, in my corner of the world, I learned that in the Scottish Highlands and Islands, the whole idea of family farms as we know them today is a relatively new one. I discovered how, in the north of Scotland, a process of domestic colonisation directly provided the foundations for our current model of family farming. I found out how whole clan territories fell into the hands of single new owners after the historic Battle of Culloden, and vast swathes of land were cleared of people, the Gales, to make way for sheep and new farming practices. In the process, the centuries-old reciprocal relationships between people and landscapes were severed. Landscapes that had been held in commons, collectively managed and intimately understood, became owned as private property, a concept that simply didn't exist here before. As Scots, we learn about the bloody fall of the clan system at school, and the violent dispossession of the Highland clearances is still vivid in the collective consciousness. But what I had absolutely no idea about, and what I certainly wasn't taught at school, was that this was only one side of the coin. That the dispossession and trauma experienced here, in the Highlands and Islands, the colonisation both of people and the land, is intimately connected with the colonisation and exploitation of other people and other landscapes in other parts of the world. And it turns out that this global legacy too has indelibly shaped the farms, the towns and the landscapes around me right here, to this day. Not too far from me is a small coastal town called Helmsdale. It sits at the mouth of the Strath of Kildonan, a valley which today lies almost empty, but where nearly 1,600 inhabitants were evicted to make way for sheep during one of the most infamous periods of the Highland Clearances. In 2007, on a hill overlooking the town, a statue titled The Emigrants was erected. The bronze cast statue depicts a Highland family with the father defiantly striding towards the future with his eyes fixed on the horizon in front of him and his child looking up towards him for guidance. Behind them is the mother with babe in arms looking back longingly down the strath that they're leaving behind. The statue's plaque reads, The Emigrants commemorates the people of the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, who, in the face of great adversity, sought freedom, hope and justice beyond these shores. They and their descendants went forth and explored continents, built great countries and cities and gave their enterprise and culture to the world. This is their legacy. Yeah, I mean, actually there's so many words and lines that could be problematized in that i mean one exploring explorers did a lot of harm then the the building aspect of it building great countries i mean the countries were already there not really necessarily wanting infrastructure that would pipe their resources wealth back to uh europe and then what is the enterprise that was given? I don't know what that is. Is that setting up trade routes? Because 
that has been articulated by other people who've defended the existence of colonialism. Well, they've got trains now. Isn't it great? My name's Josina Callist. I am the co-founder and strategic project lead for Land in Our Names, or LION, which is a grassroots black-led collective that looks at racial justice in the land reform, land justice movement. We use a reparative justice framework to think about the impacts of colonialism, enslavement, imperialism on food and farming in Britain, inspired by uh, land justice movements around the world. In this episode, Jazina is going to be joining me to help me pick through and understand some of these connections. We'll be working through some of the questions I came up against as I delved into the role of Highland Scotland in some of the darkest corners of the British Empire and the ways this legacy still shapes the landscape I live in and love today. Together, we'll try to tease out how these histories can inform what it might look like to move towards an agroecological future that is just and inclusive for everyone. Last summer, as the murder of George Floyd sparked protests and a worldwide awakening to the reality of racial injustice and white supremacy, I sat on the farm and I felt far removed. The Scottish Highlands is one of the whitest and least ethnically diverse areas in the UK, with less than 1% of Highlanders identifying as black in the 2011 census. In the past, I'd somehow let myself believe that race issues are faraway problems without much relevance here. But in looking into the current issues and colonial legacies of land reform, I now realise I was wrong on many levels. In order to understand what it means to say the family farm is a colonial concept and to move towards something better, we need to know how profoundly this area, as white and remote as it seems, has been shaped by the exploitation of people around the world. We have to acknowledge the legacy of Scots and Highlanders as perpetrators, to look that reality directly in the eye. We need to do that both to understand where we are today and to imagine any kind of future where an agroecological vision is also a just and equitable vision. And it is exactly people like you who should be doing this and picking up the mantle. And yeah, it it takes everyone to be involved for anything to change. Just a note on this point. Something I've learned is that the language we use when we talk about this history is itself really important. A lot of the words we're used to using, for instance, slave, conflate people's identity with their circumstances. Others are euphemisms that don't really describe what we mean, like plantation. So throughout this episode, instead of using the word slave, I will say enslaved African people. Rather than slavery, I'll use enslavement. Slave owners will be called enslavers, and plantations will be referred to as forced labour camps. David Alston is a historian who spent the last two decades looking into the role of Highlanders in the forced labour camps of the Caribbean, the history of enslavement, and of its aftermath. Before I started researching this series, I had a notion that our landscapes, farmscapes and patterns of land ownership might have been to some extent affected by colonialism and enslavement around the world. But I was shocked to hear from David just how significant the connections are. I think it's now clear from some of the very recent research the extent to which larger estates change hands, particularly after the emancipation of slaves in 1833-1834. Now, it's important to explain that compensation is paid at that point, but it's not compensation to those who have been enslaved. It's compensation to the slaveholders for what they perceive as their loss of property. 
And it's an enormous amount of money. It's 20 million pounds is paid out by the government from 1834 onwards. That is a larger amount of money than the British government has ever paid out. It's, it's a larger amount in proportion than the bailout of the banks in 2008. And that goes into private hands. There's a big trade in Highland estates, particularly around that point and afterwards. The research David is talking about is a report published in 2020 by Dr Ian McKinnon, a researcher at Coventry University, and his co-author, historian Andrew McKillop. It reveals just how much land had been purchased in the West Highlands and Islands by people who'd made their money by enslaving people and then received huge compensation payouts from the British government for the loss of the people they'd enslaved. Here's Ian. We found there were 63 land purchases by beneficiaries of slavery between 1726 and 1939, with a peak of sales happening in the years immediately following the setting up of that compensation fund, and the majority of purchases happening in the main years of the Highland Clearances between about 1790 and 1855. There's a total of 1,115,000 acres were bought by slavery beneficiaries. The amount of land purchased is around about one third of the total land mass of the West Highlands and Islands, as we defined it. In addition to that, you have another six or 700,000 acres that was already owned by traditional families who had direct and indirect links to slavery, such as MacLeod of Dunvegan, Mackenzie's of Gearloch, Cameron's of Loch Eel and other. So when you take that into account, it's more than half. In the time of the report, for some reason, we treated Mackenzie of Seaforth differently, but actually I think they should be in there as well. And if you include their land on Lewis, 400,000 acres, it takes up to about two thirds that was owned at some point by people who had benefited from slavery. When I heard this, it blew my mind. Two thirds of the land with links to enslavement and enslavers. And that's just on the West Coast. The issues of racial justice suddenly felt very close to home. The ownership of a Highland estate said something to them about who they were and also enabled them to change the nature of their capital. It was no longer connected with slavery and with the, this abhorrent, even at that time it was considered a, you know, an unethical, unscrupulous form of wealth. It could suddenly be transferred into land in the highlands and it would give them a different self-image. This feels even more galling. Not only is our landscape associated with enslavement, it's also complicit in helping to hide this part of our history. Our hills and our glens were part of a cover-up. If you type my name, Col Gordon, into Google, one of the first people you'll come across is a certain Colonel John Gordon. Gordon was the owner of six forced labour camps on Tobago, where he owned 1,383 enslaved African people. With the Slavery Abolition Act, he received one of the largest compensation payouts that anyone was given, the equivalent of millions of pounds in today's money. Much of this was then used to purchase huge swathes of the Western Isles, including North and South Uist, Benbecula, Bara and Eriski, where he promptly evicted the 3,000 or so tenants who'd lived there. The spoils of global imperialism and the repercussions of domestic colonisation are directly linked. Now, is Colonel Gordon a relation? I held my breath for a long time as I dug through the records. It turns out he isn't. I have to admit to breathing a big sigh of relief when I finally concluded that my privileges don't stem from this particular history. But they're likely to come from somewhere. And in any case, that's not really the point. This isn't about judging the guilt or innocence of my family's forebears or any family's forebears. It's about starting to understand how seemingly disparate patterns of dispossession across the world are connected and deeply entangled everywhere we look. (music) 
what happened to those 3,000 islanders that Colonel Gordon evicted? Most of these gales saw no other option than to board emigration ships bound for the New World. In Canada, where many of them headed, they were promised opportunities to carve out new, secure futures for themselves and their families by establishing small farms and holdings of their own. And when they arrived, many of them participated in the clearance and the genocide of the First Nations people who already lived there. This was a tangled mess. The colonised had become the colonisers. We might, on the one hand, recognise that the Scottish Highlands and Islands were subjected to processes of domestic colonisation. But that doesn't get us off the hook for other injustices. Yeah. False equivalence for me, and this probably is not going to be popular with everyone from people from Ireland and Wales and Scotland I have heard that kind of rhetoric of like we are more like the colonized people from African countries uh, from the Caribbean whilst being honest about a very real brutality that was enacted upon people here knowing that there's larger scale, very systemic violence and that people can sit as perpetrators and you know people who colluded and that the very real impacts of that continue to this day upon people from colonised lands outside of Europe. Yeah, horrific things were enacted upon other people which then muddies the water of, yeah, being a colonised peoples or only being a colonised peoples and not straddling both colonised or colonised. It is something that we're going to continue to need to reconcile ourselves with and acknowledge to others is the way in which, by virtue and substantial part of our whiteness, we were able to fairly seamlessly become part of the imperial machine. Silke Stroh, who's a German post-colonial scholar who, who does work on Gaelic Scotland, made the point that there was no glass ceiling for Gales within empire. Other groups could join the imperial project and did, but because of the colour of their skin, there were limits to what roles in empire they could occupy. For Gales, we were governor generals all over the place because we fitted in. That, I think has also been part of our own dislocation because we've come to celebrate and glorify people like Lachlan Macquarie, Governor-General of New South Wales in Australia and a significant indirect beneficiary of slavery and John MacDonald in Canada, the first Premier of a united Canada. These were imperialists who played a substantial role in the destruction of Indigenous cultures and we are very much needing to face up to and to continue facing up to that past. And it's a very necessary part of re-establishing ourselves as a people now is to recognise the course of our history in the past and those forces that we've come to glorify, but which actually are part of our own deterioration and decline. And it wasn't just overseas that Scots were profiting from enslavement. I've been looking at this for about 20 years, and what I've come to think is that unless you understand the history of slavery and the involvement in slavery, then you don't really understand the history of the Highlands. You don't understand the history of Scotland. Now, why am I saying that? Well, the bottom line is slavery is where the money was being made. Historian David Alston explained to me that in 1707, when Scotland and England officially became united, the industries that were based around the forced labour of enslaved African people were booming. From almost a standing start, the Scots, and particularly Highland Scots, started getting involved in what were then called the English Sugar Islands in the Caribbean. By the 1760s, roughly a third of the white population of the largest of these islands, Jamaica, were Scots. Huge fortunes were being made off the back of kidnapped and enslaved African people, 
and much of these profits were coming back home to Scotland and being invested in the Highlands. There's a number of different kinds of investment in infrastructure. Some of these are institutions like schools and hospitals. So the, the Highlands first significant hospital, the, the Northern Infirmary, a significant part of the funding for that comes from donations from plantation owners. Similar to with schools, Inverness Royal Academy, Tain Royal Academy, money is coming from plantation owners, but also young Scots who are out in these colonies have children, often with enslaved or free women of colour. Some of these children are sent back for education in the Highlands. So quite remarkably, Inverness Royal Academy in 1804, almost one in 10 of the pupils was from the Caribbean. Now, I don't know how many of these pupils were black, but some of them certainly were. There's also investment that transforms the landscape. Money is feeding back into farming because that coincides with the transformation of Scottish agriculture from the 1760s. But in the north, it's more from the 1790s. That's what creates what we now recognise as, I think, as the farming landscape. It's obviously changed a lot since then, but that, that fundamental initial stage of improvement, the creation of single tenancy farms on the fertile lowlands, that's happening during that same period. People need capital in order to, to make that investment, to make that transformation of the landscape, and a significant amount of that money is coming from slavery. As a result of this, we begin to see prosperous farms emerging in this area. Does that include my family farm, inching down where I am today? I can look down towards the small river or burn which runs through our farm and down the glen. This burn is perfectly straight. At some point it's obviously been channelled to take out its natural meandering curves and bring the fields either side of it into agricultural production. I'd always wondered when this had happened and who did it. And then I look at the beautiful old stone barn at our farm and the other big old outbuildings that are common in the farmyards all around this area. I've often thought it would be impossible to build something like this today. Where did the money come from to build these amazing structures? Despite having thought about this question a fair bit, it had literally never occurred to me that this money might have come from colonial projects and the enslavement of African people on the other side of the world. But it all adds up. I'm beginning to understand that if we know what to look for, the effects of enslavement and of colonialism are apparent everywhere. Looking through records of land ownership, in almost every farm in my area where the land's been improved and large infrastructure's been installed, there's a link with British colonial extraction around the world. Those enslavers who'd profited from forced labour in the Caribbean, traders in the East Indian Company, and merchants who'd made a fortune selling opium in China. Where I am, much of the land can only be farmed at all because it was drained by a man called Hugh Rose, who made his money as an enslaver in Guyana. So this landscape and these farms were only possible because of the profits made from colonial extraction and the forced labour of kidnapped and enslaved African people. That landscape is in some ways very obviously a legacy of slavery. I mean, you can find examples of that scattered throughout the Highlands and throughout Scotland. David explained to me that there were also all sorts of industries and enterprises that were less obviously connected to colonialism, but were still essential to keeping forced labour camps operating in the Caribbean and elsewhere. A lot of these newly established private family farms found ways to capitalise on these opportunities. There are some very specific connections between some particular farming families and slave plantations. It's sometimes not quite what you would think. One of the ways in which they early on made money was in the salt pork trade. Now, salt pork is one of the staple foods that has been shipped out to the West Indies, I think largely for consumption by the white population, because in all of the plantation economies, it's a monoculture and everything has been taken over for the production, and particularly of sugar, but also of of cotton, coffee, indigo. Plantation owners are then faced with the question of where, where did they get food from? And some of the food, at least, is coming from Scotland and salt pork. That's a plantation food. There are lots of other examples in the Highlands and Islands of market opportunities which fed into this economy. Salt herring, for instance, was sold as a food for the enslaved, 
with the profits of this helping to build many of our coastal villages. Numerous textile mills manufacturing hemp sacks to carry cotton. A lot of money was being made in a lot of different ways. Because so much money is being made in slavery, the effects of slavery permeate society. And it's very difficult, I think, to separate out you know, those who benefit and those who don't because it fuels the economy. It's like asking who benefits from North Sea oil. There are people who very obviously directly benefit, but Scotland as a whole has benefited. And you could say who hasn't benefited. You can ask the same questions about slavery. So we're up to our ears in it. I'm starting to see that the vision of the family farm is deeply entangled in colonial processes, dispossession and genocide at a global scale. Its emergence here was facilitated by the clearance of families from Scottish soil, which pushed people out of their historic homes and then drew these people across the seas to evict other families from their homes. The good, wholesome image of the Highland family farm was also the tonic that cleansed the family names of colonizers and enslavers. Yet, it's something we don't talk about. I think that Scotland as a whole, of the Highlands in particular, have a particular problem in facing up to this aspect of our past. And I think it's because of the story that story and stories that we wanted to tell ourselves of being the victims of history. Now, the evidence shows very clearly that Scots are not just involved with slavery and benefit from slavery, but they're disproportionately involved in slavery and the benefits of slavery. So in, in proportion to the population of Scotland, more Scots are slave owners than, um, than in England and Wales. I'm very hesitant about calling this a forgotten history because it's certainly not forgotten by the descendants of the enslaved, but it's been silenced as a history. And I think that's particularly so in the Highlands, because I mean, clearly there is an extent to which Highlanders are, in some respects, the victims of history. And we know about the Highland clearances, but that mustn't allow us to turn away from the fact that Scots are enthusiastically and usually without remorse involved in the whole bloody business of slavery and benefit from it. That is our history. We need a grown-up history. We need to face up to that. And we need to ask the question, what, what does that mean for us now? Has it got consequences? I'm thinking about guilt now. I was trying to remember what one of my mentors, pseudo-dads, would say. Guilt is the glue that holds prejudice in place. It should only ever be one phase of a process which leads to reckoning, grieving, then healing. But, yeah, if we're talking about trauma and colonising people and land, like, we can get really stuck on the guilt and the shame bit. So, yeah, how to, how to push it forward. It can be debilitating, I suppose, just you don't know what to do with that thing, so you maybe you don't do anything. Certainly, I think it's really important to think about how these processes can be used to give agency for change rather than just awareness of guilt. So how can we begin to acknowledge this part of our history here in the Highland landscape? I asked psychotherapist and grower Shrik Narayanan what he thought was the best approach. Looking at it through the lens of trauma is quite useful because it's quite a well-recognised thing now that trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, that those wounds that we have are not just our own and we may be holding things that have been there for generations. So we're not just healing them for ourselves, we're healing them because something is calling us from potentially many generations ago. And when we look more collectively, actually we see that we're all holding things for each other 
and for generations that have preceded us. So I guess the responsibility there is to like, well, if we start to look at those things and work with those things, then we don't need to pass them on as wounds. I now understand that our future must involve acknowledging and healing the traumas of the past, both those experienced here and those inflicted by people from here. After all, these traumas are very much still alive for black people and people of colour and for white people. And unless we acknowledge and address these traumas, we'll remain stuck in the trap of an extractive and exploitative relationship. In other words, a colonial relationship, both to people and to the land. Reparations is a term that comes up a lot when talking about how we can address the legacy of enslavement and colonisation. When I first started looking into this, I thought reparations were all about wealth or resource redistribution. And that is one aspect of it. But Jazina explained to me that reparative justice can take all sorts of forms. We work towards greater land access and ownership by black people and people of colour in Britain. The goal being not an individual owning more land uh, or more black individuals that are owning land that's for their own use, but more land for the common good and greater access to nature, more connection with living ecosystems and allowing people to have a better relationship with rural landscapes, addressing rural racism or racism that exists when people try to have um, better encounters or relationships uh, with green spaces in urban and rural places. And where does land specifically fit into this? There are so many quotes from black thinkers, uh, post-colonial theorists, which are about the centrality of land. And because it's so obscured as something which has been taken away or treated really badly. But if we think about the need for reparations, we can quite easily tie the need for repair of people, healing really, really deep trauma scars and the need for the land to heal from a lot of those same processes. And, yeah, like the people that we've learned a lot from in in the States at Soulfire Farm would say that land is the scene of the crime, but it's not the criminal. So repair is a key part of reparations. As Jazina says, reparations involves not just the redistribution of resources, but also repairing our relationship with the land and with other people. Moving away from the exploitative, extractive, dominating mindset that is pervasive. In other words, reparations means all of us decolonizing our relationship with the land and with people. Part of that is moving away from the human nature separation that is a hallmark of our current way of thinking about and managing land. And rather than continuing on our current trajectory of widening this gap, instead finding ways to have many more people living and making a living on the land. So how can rural spaces, in this case highland spaces, become more open, accessible and available to black people and people of colour? And how can we make this part of reparations? The fact is, rural areas such as the highlands can sometimes feel and be uncomfortable, hostile and indeed unsafe for BIPOC folk. Philomena de Lima is a professor of applied sociology and rural studies at the University of the Highlands and Islands. She grew up in Uganda and in Goa and has lived in the Highlands for most of her adult life. I think there's a wider story that, you know, Scotland tells itself, which is about Scotland as being the leader of the Enlightenment and and therefore have this sort of perception of themselves as being more enlightened, more welcoming. And often the contrast is with England, where England is seen as the other you know, and therefore 
they're very welcoming to the rest of the world. But actually, the experience on the ground can be very different. And I'm not saying everybody's like that. I'm not saying it's an individual thing. But of course, it's experienced as an individual thing, because if someone calls out a name or, you know, sort of says racist remarks or you're discriminated because of your race or ethnicity, then, of course, it's experienced in an individual way. But, you know, the key thing is it's systemic, it's institutional, it's embedded in everything, and it can be unconscious and sometimes it can be conscious. I'll send you a link to the work of somebody called Ingrid Pollard. She was a very well-known, she is a well-known artist among some people. She did some photographs where she photographs herself in the middle of the English countryside. And it was very much about putting the black presence in what was seen as a very white English countryside. A lot of people picked that up. It influenced my work as well about challenging rural spaces how people feel in a landscape. I think that's really important because landscapes communicate symbolically or in the imagination particular joys, but also fears, you know. And I think the issue about being conspicuous is quite, can be quite an issue for people. This is something as a straight, white, landed, able-bodied man, I've never experienced myself in the Highlands. And it's a perspective I haven't often heard talked about. I asked Shrik what some of the challenges are for black people and people of colour in rural spaces. Part of the challenge is because these are well known to be like places where diversity isn't there in some ways. Uh, they're very white spaces in the UK, very white places, and that's the way that it has been for a long time. I guess there's something about, well, safety is one thing so that my difference isn't going to be looked at as dangerous, so that it's safe for me to be there, that I can relax in these places. And that's, that's edgy for a lot of people of colour and others um, in very white spaces. And, and for good reason, it takes a lot of courage to put yourself out there. So acknowledging that is a, is a really important thing, that it, that it can be difficult. What we're talking about is not necessarily explicit violence or prejudice, but it's the feeling that that may be under the surface somewhere, that there's a kind of roles that we're fitting into. And that is enough for our nervous systems to be activated, which means that quite literally we can't relax. <laughs> so how can we make rural spaces like the Highlands accessible, safe and welcoming for black people and people of colour so that people can feel at home and for those who want to make this place their home. We also have to start this by, by making these places seem less scary by creating a culture of welcome in all of these places. For me, the work starts by kind of looking at ourselves and kind of going, well, what do I assume the other will be like? <laughs> and... and what ways might that be a problem for me? And can I be a little less scared of that? Because essentially that's what the other holds. It, it holds the person we don't want to connect with, the places we don't want to go. I'm not saying that this is necessarily easy, but I kind of hope that it might be possible to kind of break down some of the assumptions that we have and, and to encourage a sort of flow and to get over these splits that we have to kind of encourage them to be a bit more permeable particularly for rural places, that they're not just places to go for a holiday or the backdrop to your leisure activity. They're places of life, of culture. They're places that are essential for our living collectively. They are where our food comes from. To really recognise those things as, as the priority rather than the beautiful rural landscape, the idyllic or the holiday. In Scotland, we often talk about repeopling. In other words, encouraging and allowing more people to live and work in rural places. And all these conversations I've been having have got me thinking. How can we link this drive for repeopling with racial justice? What role could reparations and repair play in repeopling the Highlands? 
I asked Dr Ian McKinnon how we can make sure the repeopling agenda is inclusive to BPOC folk who want to be on the land. There is existing asks, perhaps even pressure within civil society organisations for that to happen. But within that, you then have perhaps much less well-resourced, with a less strong voice, civil society organisations, perhaps representing ethnic minorities in urban areas who might be considering these things, but simply don't have a way of making those aspirations and demands public. I think for those groups, if there is a desire or aspiration within them, is to make connection in the first instance with groups like the SEF. SEF is the Scottish Crofting Federation, which is campaigning for the creation of 10,000 new crofts across Scotland. And particularly now with Community Land Scotland, because Community Land Scotland has made itself a forum for the issue of historical slavery and, and reparations and those sorts of issues to be discussed. So if there is an aspiration within BPOC communities, within ethnic minorities, then it seems to me that approaching those groups to say, look, what about us? How can we be part of this? Is one potential first step. So there could already be clear routes and roadmaps to begin building these connections between seemingly disparate communities. I also think with those processes, regardless of who it is that's going into those new communities, we need to be very careful how that's done. I think that it's important in the future, when such projects happen, that a lot of attention is paid to community building processes, because it's a different situation from a community taking ownership of a place like Egg or Noidart. In those instances, the process of buying the land galvanises a sense of community, even among people who are culturally quite disparate. On Egg, for instance, a lot of different cultural backgrounds, but the very fight and struggle to get the land brought them together as a community. If you're putting 20 strangers onto a piece of hillside, the bringing together of that group of people is going to be critical in terms of how that works. And if a group of, you know, a small group of people from an ethnic minority in a city have established a desire to reconvene themselves on land elsewhere as an agricultural community, the very fact that they've got that group cohesion from the outset, I would have thought would stand them in good stead. The radical element of it will be the time that it takes to, to do it. You know, making a thing happen now, I think, is characteristic of the Imperial Project. I think these things have to mature. They have to really come into being. And, and those, those relationships, particularly if you're talking about you know, integrating into a larger community, that process of establishing the connections, you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing, long, longer-term process. And there are you know, methods for, for doing that. And I think if those projects are happening, we need to avail upon the methods that are there for bringing people together and establishing a sense of community among strangers. I'm also beginning to think that we tend to put the onus on BPOC communities to try to seek out links with rural spaces. But there's a really important role for existing rural communities, like mine, to be proactive in facilitating these networks and creating connections. That is vitally important to, you know, work with the local people so that the local people are engaged in that process. You know, people like the land in our names need to be facilitated to be able to have that dialogue, that sort of local engagement. You know, so it has to be from the bottom up. To some extent, to feel at home here is to have, so it's to have a strong sort of social network, to have people around you that support you, that affirm who you are and not always question you, you know, and and where you can see some of yourself reflected around you, you know, where you can see an affirmation of who you are, where, you know, you feel your skills are valued or, you know, that you're not constantly put into a box as being different, I suppose, and that you don't have to prove yourself all the time. I mean, one of the things I can point to is, you know, I always felt that as somebody who was seen as different and, and not necessarily from here, I always had to authenticate that I actually knew about rural in some ways. I almost had to sort of say, well, you know, I, I have lived on a craft. We have established a business. I, 
you know, I've lived in rural areas. I had to justify myself. So it's to develop a sort of context where people don't constantly have to think of themselves of the other. It doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge that people have a different culture or they have a different religion and you and you affirm that, not assuming that people will know what the norms are in a place. You know, sometimes taking the care to explain things, you know, to explore the differences. And, you know, that goes for anybody new moving in. You know, if somebody new moves in from, I don't know, Lancashire to the Highlands, Belonging doesn't happen at a big scale. It happens at the local community level. And, you know, working with people in, whether it's schools, community groups or whatever, that's where it has to start because that's where it's experienced. So what I'm hearing is that the community that is already here has a big responsibility, a responsibility to find, create and signpost opportunities and a responsibility to put in the time and effort to help foster communities and the networks around communities to help them thrive. Sometimes these changes, because they are multi-generational, because they're huge, it can be really overwhelming or even easy to kind of go, well, that's too big for me to do anything about. I really trust the value of small actions and experiences that I can initiate just the mere fact of being somewhere, of having a conversation with somebody, of being on some land, of having this kind of relationship. There's nothing to stop any of us doing that for ourselves. And I kind of feel like many more of us have to in order to bring this much bigger system-wide change. So I really want to encourage that. We can do it. All of us can kind of do something towards it. But none of us by ourselves can change the whole system. But by each of us doing what we can, we, we will bring a kind of system change. And I, I feel like it's really important to trust that that, that that is possible. So... Having once felt that racial issues were happening somewhere else, somewhere far away, I've learned so much this year about why that simply isn't the case. The racial injustices of enslavement and our colonial history have shaped the landscape around me, and we, I, have a role to play in repairing some of that damage. I think the first step in doing this is acknowledging the hidden histories written in our fields and farm buildings. We need to look our past directly in the face, see it with fresh eyes and speak about it in new ways, ways that will often be uncomfortable and unfamiliar, ways that look at the small family farm and recognise that it is, in fact, a colonial concept. We need to not pacify or glorify the past, but we must also not let posthumous guilt lead to further inaction. The next step is perhaps more complicated and challenging. I think the next step is figuring out what can we do today and tomorrow and the next day to start building reparative justice into our landscapes. Land has the power to heal, but it will be people rural communities and landed people in particular that can help unleash this power. As my ideas about how to build an agroecological and just future evolve, I can see that healing and repair must be at the heart of that future. It's clear from the history of Highlanders that the family farm model almost always serves the colonisers. Both here and abroad, the colonisation of land meant fewer and fewer people had direct relationship with it. Suddenly, the land became a resource to be extracted from. Racial justice is not a sub-branch of land reform, but must be at the heart of everything when we talk about the future of land in Scotland. In part four, 
I will look into this future to find clues as to how this might come about. There's something I kind of perceive as a kind of resistance that's been there in Scotland. Maybe a resistance to being colonised or being taken. And it's maybe that's kind of still there in some ways, that there's been an attempt, it seems to me, to keep some things alive. It's not a big turn for that to really energise some of the kind of movements that we've been talking about. It's, it's kind of in the same direction. So I guess what I'm perceiving is that there's something in the culture in Scotland that, that has common cause with other anti-colonial movements. That it's there in some way, just about. There's a kind of potential allyship there that is really valuable, hopefully both ways. Landed is produced by Paul Gordon and Katie Revel, with executive producer Abby Rose. Our project manager is Olivia Oldham. Huge thanks to Josina Callist for her guidance and input, and to Sarah Nicholas for all her help and support. Thanks also to Joe Barrett. The music for Landed is by Dagger Gordon and me, Cole Gordon. Funding for the project was provided by the funding platform Necessity. Farmerama is committed to keeping all our episodes free and to paying our team a living wage. To do so, we rely on the support of you, our community of listeners. If you'd like to help us make more podcasts, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash farmerama. This episode featured David Austin, Josina Callist, Ian McKinnon, Shrik Narayanan, and Philomena de Lima. <laughs>